Welcome to the AdWoke Podcast. My name is Brett Craig, and here's my story. I'm a former chief creative officer that worked at two of the biggest ad agencies on the West Coast for some of the most famous brands in the world. About two years ago, I was canceled for a five-year-old casting email that someone posted on Instagram. I used some imperfect language. It was taken out of context, and it all happened in the middle of the racial tensions of 2020. The social media mobbing that ensued in the comment section below my email posted on Instagram caused me to lose my job and to be called some rather ugly names that I never thought I'd be called. Suddenly, I went from the top of my career to no career at all. Canceled. Even friends that supported me privately wouldn't come near me publicly. I'm a Christian, and I do believe that God is working all things together for my good, but it was quite honestly one of the most devastating experiences of my life. But it was also strangely liberating. I woke up to a new world, full of uncertainty, but also full of opportunity. The opportunity to do something in short supply in the corporate world today. Tell the truth. I no longer had to be conflicted promoting ideas I don't agree with. And in these times of deceit, I counted a privilege to be able to speak honestly. That's what the AdWoke podcast is all about. I'm going to give it to you straight. We're going to occasionally laugh, and I'm going to say the things you're not allowed to say. Not because I just want to be provocative, although the truth is often provocative, but because I believe the truth will set you free. Welcome to the AdWoke Podcast. Today, I want to talk about colorblindness. Should we, as a society, still strive for colorblindness? But first, as always, a word from our sponsor, DEI Mart. Okay, school's back, and DEI Mart wants to make sure your kid is woke and ready to learn that their skin color is the most important thing about them. You're going to want to check out DEI Mart's cool duds for your privileged little white child, like their white oppressor tee, or their popular whiteness is a bad deal hoodie, which reminds everyone that being white is, well, a really bad deal. And don't miss out on their awesome new kicks featuring the new uh, American flag printed on the sole of the shoe. That way your little junior can stomp on America without even thinking about it. These back-to-school fashions are sure to be a hit and will signal your kids' total obedience to the new critical race theory ideas that are warping their impressionable brains at your local school. And if you order now, we'll even throw in a speech suppression mask for free. So even if your child has an original thought, no one will be able to hear them say it. It's all available right now at DEI Mart. Uh, DEI Mart, where social justice is always in fashion. Wow, that's a great sponsor, DEI. I think I really got some great social justice stuff going on over there. You'll need to check it out. Um, All right, like I said, we are going to talk about colorblindness today and what does it mean exactly to be colorblind? And more importantly, should we strive for colorblindness as a society? And I think it's really important uh, to tackle this subject because today, thanks to critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion practices and anti-racism, all these different ideologies, we're being taught to be color conscious, right? To be very color focused, to be very aware of skin color at all times. Uh, We're told we need to think about it in our interactions at work or in our communities or in our churches, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, uh, we're told we ought to hire and promote based on color. Uh, And that way we can achieve, uh, yes, you know, equity. And I've already discussed the impossibility of truly achieving perfect equity. And it means 
if you were going to do that, forcing outcomes to be equal, which is essentially socialism and communism, where some authority will need to redistribute resources, which will mean that we'll need to punish people for simply having the wrong skin or reward others for having the right skin color or gender, let's say. And of course, that is what is happening right now in corporations across America. And it's against the law, but it doesn't seem to matter, right? Because it's happening anyway. But before we go any further, I want to establish what we mean when we say colorblindness. What is it? And I think it's good to define terms because so often, especially in this diversity, equity, and inclusion kind of uh, environment that we find ourselves in, uh, definitions get blurry. And I believe that that is actually purposely done, just like equality and equity get mixed together when they're not the same thing. Uh, And I think they do that because they really don't want you to know what system they're actually imposing. So they keep definitions purposely vague. But I want to be very clear. So here's a definition of colorblindness uh, that I think is very simple. It's the belief, and I got this off Wikipedia, so there's no big genius here. It's just a simple definition. It's the belief that an individual's race or ethnicity should not influence how that individual is treated in society. One more time. Colorblindness, it's the belief that an individual's race or ethnicity should not influence how that individual is treated in society. So I think it's interesting. If, if you grew up, let's say, before 2015, roughly, you probably would think it's racist to even ask the question of whether we should strive for colorblindness, right? Um, Of course we should strive for colorblindness, the average person growing up in my era would have said, because that's just what we were taught. This was an agreed-upon idea in American life, and it was taught in our schools. It was just kind of a given. And I'm not saying that we always lived up to this value of colorblindness in America, but it was the aspiration and it was kind of agreed upon. Uh, And the idea behind colorblindness was the notion that what's important about someone is not their skin color, but who they are, their character and their heart. Uh, This is what's important about somebody. And this is the idea that MLK so eloquently spoke about in his famous I Have a Dream speech, in which he said, quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of of their character. Uh, And that is the most memorable line, I think, uh, that MLK uh, ever said, and it's in this famous I Have a Dream speech. And and this idea is is basically been embraced, like I said, by America uh, and celebrated ever since. And in fact, colorblindness was codified into law in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act, which forbids discrimination of any kind based on race, religion, or gender. Um, In America, since the 60s, we've pretty much held to this belief or aspired to this belief to have a colorblind justice system, uh, that we ought to be colorblind in our practices in both government and the private sector. Uh, And in fact, it's a violation of the law if we were to hire or promote or fire or uh, segregate based on color or discriminate based on color. Uh, Again, to even question this idea of colorblindness just five to 10 years ago would have been considered racist. Uh, Of course, we should strive for colorblindness. That's what people would have said. But today as a society, and I think it's important to talk about how we've evolved on this, we are indeed questioning this notion of colorblindness, particularly uh, the anti-racism, diversity, equity, inclusion movement are very much rejecting colorblindness, and they're exchanging it for color consciousness. And what I mean by that is that 
society now thinks the idea is that we should be quite focused on skin color. Uh, since race and racism, they argue, plays a role in almost every interaction in American society. This is what they would say. Now, again, I want to be fair as possible. I always think that's necessary. So why do anti-racist and DEI advocates want to do away with the idea of colorblindness? Well, I, I think what DEIs, sort of uh, critical race theorists, sort of anti-racist folks are saying is this. Number one, uh, achieving colorblindness is impossible, they would say. And the fact is we all see color and to deny that is to deny, to deny reality. Not only do we see color, I think they would say, but, but we also attach our biases to color. In other words, we make associations and we make assumptions based on people's skin color. Uh, there's a term for this, and you've heard it in your DEI training, or you've probably heard it by now. It's called unconscious bias, and it's this idea that whether you know it or not, you have biases. And you base um, those biases on people's skin color, oftentimes, whether you're aware of it or not, uh, and whether you want to admit it or not. So I guess the question here is, are the anti-racists and DEI folks right? And I think in this regard, they have a point. Um, the truth is we do see color. I think when people say they don't see color, that is not accurate or honest. Uh, I think they mean something else when they say that. I think what people are trying to say when they say that is that I don't um, base the way I treat people on color. But, but oftentimes the way it comes out is people will say they don't see color, and I don't think that is true. The truth is everyone, white and black and brown and every other uh, skin color, uh, we all do have biases and we all see color. And why is that? Well, because we're human and we're fallible. And so it's what we do. Much as we try, much as we may not like it about ourselves, we do see skin color and we often do have a biases attached to uh, skin color when we think about people's skin color. So what is the remedy to this problem that we notice skin color and often have biases regarding skin color? Uh, and I think what the DEI people are saying, that, you know, since colorblindness and a perfectly colorblind society isn't possible and we do see skin color, the remedy, they would say, is to double down on our fixation with skin color. That's right. We need to get hyper-focused on race uh, and melanin levels uh, and even treat people differently according to their skin color. So a great example of this, and I've brought it up before, but it's just such a clear example, is what Ibram X. Kendi says. Now, he is the black intellectual uh, who coined the term anti-racist. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi's idea for how to overcome the fact that we do see color, which has led to historical discrimination and present discrimination in America, he would argue, uh, his, his remedy to that would be this, and this is what he says, quote, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. We should discriminate based on skin color, according to Ibram X. Kendi. And he doesn't even try to deny this. In fact, uh, Kendi has advocated for creating a governmental department called the Department of Anti-Racism that would have the power to root out racists in all of civic life uh, and corporate uh, settings and in government settings. That means uh, a department full of bureaucrats with badges and authority, uh, perhaps even guns, uh, kind of hunting around for closet racists like the Stasi in each, East Germany which would be a terrible idea. 
the Department of Anti-Racism would also enforce equitable outcomes in the government and private sector, according to Kendi, which would mean that any inequity over a certain threshold, which means a lack of perfectly uh, perfect equitable representation uh, in regards to race, any inequity over a certain threshold would automatically mean you could be in trouble with this Department of Anti-Racism. Now, again, the evidence of racism, the proof that racism is active inside of your institution would be defined as uh, inequity of representation, which is always seen as the proof of the pernicious effects of racism. Uh, No other factors can or will be considered when inequitable representation rears itself. Racism is the only reason we can consider for inequitable outcomes in life. Uh, of any kind, which is ridiculous. And I covered this on my equity podcast, so I'm not going to go deep into that right now. Uh, Another clear example of how we're being asked to be color-focused, right, instead of colorblind. Well, we are now expressly being told to discriminate based on color. And we all know this is happening. Uh, It's what we might call good discrimination or good racism, and it's being directed I think that's at least what people tell themselves. It's being directed at white Americans and Asian Americans, for example, in university admissions. And surely this discrimination is going to be directed at more and more groups over time because once racism gets going, it is a virus and a disease that only gets worse and worse inside of a culture. So so any, in any case, the DEI anti-racist folks are telling us this. They're saying, we need to be color-sighted, not color-blind, but color-sighted. We need to be color-focused. And this, they say, is the remedy to our age-old problem of seeing skin color and attaching various biases to skin color. Uh, and that is, again, to notice skin color even more and then discriminate against people based on their skin color. Again, this is considered good discrimination. So, so I've said before that these are neo-Marxist theories, uh, neo-Marxist thinkers that have toiled for a long time to create various theories uh, around uh, racial uh, uh, subjects. Uh, their goal is division. Um, and so these theories uh, come in many packages uh, as critical race theory in the legal setting. Uh, intersectionality is another one that we talk about a lot. Uh, intersectionality is about overlapping intersections of oppression that people face. Uh, and of course, Abram X. Kennedy's anti-racism and diversity, equity, inclusion, it's all been packaged in a million ways, but they're all selling the same thing. And all of these ideologies have built their ideas on sophistic arguments, meaning they are flawed arguments. Uh, these are arguments that have a kernel of truth in them, and so they sound really good to our ears. Uh, They're usually very emotional arguments, but they are ultimately just pure sophistry, uh, which means they're just flawed arguments that lead to fallacious and damaging prescriptions that make everything worse, especially when we're talking about racism. Uh, Because after all, if what we're telling people is you now have permission to be color-sighted or color-focused in your hiring and firing and admissions to college uh, or in the corporate setting, hiring and firing— then we are literally creating a new form of, yes, you guessed it, systemic racism. That's right. This is how perverse this ideology is. We are embracing a new form of systemic racism that is overt state and institutionally sanctioned discrimination based on color. And we're telling people to be a good anti-racist. You basically have to be, well, yes, a racist. 
double down on seeing color and, in fact, make assumptions about people based on their skin color. And if you don't do this, you are not an anti-racist, according to Ibram X. Kendi, because you need to be discriminating based on color. And it's all so perverse and so morally inverted, it boggles the mind. And most of us, I think like a deer in the headlights, are nodding along, not because we don't realize on some level that this is wrong, I think our spidey sense is tingling, but because we know these same people that are telling us to do this will immediately start calling you names if you question their arguments. And this is what I meant by sophistry. Their arguments sound good, but they're fallacious in the end. Uh, and they've, they're well-constructed, so if you raise a question about their arguments, you know that you're going to be charged with racism. Uh, you're going to be told things like this, that you're speaking from your white privilege, or you're going to be told it's your white fragility showing. That's so abusive, by the way, to say this to people. Like, you're not allowed to ask questions. Like, that's the hallmark of an abusive relationship. Um, it's just so, it's just, it's so bad. And sadly, they are making ground with this argument, this fallacious argument, uh, for sure. Colorblindness is not something anybody even talks about anymore. And if you don't believe me, just try bringing up colorblindness in your next DEI meeting at work and just see how it's received. I promise you it will not go well. Uh, in fact, I was in a uh, DEI uh, course. We were talking about all these things, and my boss at the time mentioned out loud that uh, he thinks there's only one race. It's called the human race to which the DEI instructor, who shall remain nameless, basically chided him and scolded him and said, that's not true. Uh, that, that, that it, basically, he, doesn't, he didn't want my boss to believe that we're all one. Because the whole idea of diversity, equity, inclusion is to divide, is to, sh to make you conscious of division uh, and to exacerbate division. So the DEI folks... Uh, say we need to be color conscious, we need to be color obsessed, we need to be, uh, we need to discriminate in order to fix discrimination because color blindness is impossible and is a failure anyways, right? But what I want to now make uh, the argument for is that we should still, in fact, strive for a colorblind society, that this is still the best idea for ethnic harmony in America and in the world. And I think the key idea here is the word strive. Right? The key idea here is the word strive. We should strive for a colorblind society. And I say strive is the key idea because the DEI, anti-racist, critical race theory folks are right. We don't perfectly achieve colorblindness if we're honest, but that does not mean that we shouldn't strive for colorblindness strive to not judge a book by its cover. And I like that sort of idiom as a analogy for striving for colorblindness. We've always heard this idea that we ought not judge a book by its cover. Now, when you see a book, do you notice the cover? Of course you notice the cover. That's why publishers spend so much time making cool covers uh, to their books. I've worked on book covers. I know how much time is put into that. And it's why advertisers spend so much time on packaging, et cetera, et cetera. We know that uh, what's on the outside matters to consumers. Uh, but as we also know, you ought not judge a book by its cover because the story inside often isn't what we thought 
right? Some books with great covers aren't really that great on the inside, and other books with covers that might not seem that interesting turn out to be the best books of all. In other words, we ought not make judgments about people based on their book cover, which in the case of humans is their skin color, at least in part, right? But again, this is exactly what the DEI, critical race theory, slash anti-racist folks are telling us to do. We, and if you need more proof, let's just take the idea that we constantly hear lately. It's known as white privilege. And I'm just going to use this as an example. This is the idea that I can look at a white person and I can know just based on their skin color that they are privileged. And essentially, they have sort of an e-ticket to society and they kind of have it easier, is the suggestion, than all people of color. Um, that's essentially the argument. Now, what this theory suggests is that it doesn't matter if this particular person I'm looking at was born in a trailer park, was beaten as a child and grew up parentless and poor in Appalachia. The DEI folks will still say this person has white privilege. Now, how do they know that? They know this based on their white skin color. In other words, they know every person's story that is white, by just looking at their skin color alone. And then they are free to assume that this person or these people have white privilege, consequently, and then treat them accordingly. Now, of course, some white people are born with a spoon in their mouth, and some black people are too. Now, I think of the Obama kids. Do you think that they experience privilege? Of course they do. And, and by the way, it would be actually racist of me to assume that the Obama kids are oppressed and marginalized. Uh, when you live on Martha's Vineyard and you are a child of the Obamas, I guarantee you are anything but. You're anything but oppressed and marginalized. Certainly the Obama kids are privileged and to assume otherwise just by looking at their skin would actually be racist and to be making assumptions and would show bias actually for me to assume otherwise just by looking at them. The point is, it's lazy thinking to assume all white people have had it much easier than all people of color in every situation, right? This idea of white privilege, just as it would be wrong to assume every black person you meet is oppressed or quote unquote marginalized. Because if we made that assumption, if we did, right, we would be judging people by their cover, their skin color, right? And this is a lazy and simplistic and unnuanced way to view people who are actually individuals. By the way, what what this does in the end when we do this, by the way, is collectivize people into groups. And we call that stereotyping, which again, it's just like we always knew that was a thing that we don't want to engage in. Stereotyping is wrong. So it's called stereotyping uh, versus Instead, seeing each person as an individual with a nuanced and complex story made in the image of God in which skin color is only a part of who they are. Yes, it's a part of their story, but it's certainly not their whole story. And we ought not base the way we treat a person uh, based on their skin color, right? Which is exactly, again, what the DEI anti-racist folks say we should do. And I'll say this. As we embrace these new ideologies that tell us that we should be highly color conscious and color obsessed, ethnic relations are going backwards in America. And we can all feel it. The fruit, and I think it's so important to always go back to what is the fruit of a policy. That's, you know, it's one thing to have a policy that sounds good, but what is the fruit of the policy? I think it's clear the fruit of these policies is upping the racial animosity between groups. 
It's racializing political rhetoric and making it impossible for us to see our many commonalities as Americans and as people. And that is incredibly tragic. And I think, I believe, it is purposeful. So I mentioned MLK and his amazing I Have a Dream speech and his dream that one day his kids would be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And I said these words became our sort of de facto American view on race until very recently. Well, I just want to ask one question. Where do we think Reverend Martin Luther King got this idea from? And I think the clue is in the word reverend. And I think it's obvious uh, MLK had a Christian worldview which informed uh, his ideas. And I think it's worth discussing this. MLK did not get this idea that it's our character that counts from nowhere. He got it from his faith. So what is a fair and sober Christian perspective on this issue of colorblindness? Well, first of all, I, I want to affirm that there's no doubt that God sees color and ethnicity. Uh, he's created uh, us in all kinds of shades of color, and therefore he wanted it that way. Not only that, uh, he says he made us in his image uh, in Genesis, which means that all these various shades of color uh, and cultures are a reflection of God himself. So I want to affirm God's love of different skin color and ethnicities. It's how he intended it. Uh, and God created skin color and ethnicity, and he recognizes those differences, of course. But here's the thing that is also clear uh, in 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 the Bible. Uh, and, it, and it's even a bigger point that God makes over and over. He is interested in our heart and in our character. And in fact, he's most interested in what's on the inside of us rather than on the outside. And it's not even close. Okay. So uh, I want to tell a little story from First Samuel. This is in the Old Testament. And I think it's illuminating about this because I think it's really, it's kind of funny and um, just shows, it gives you insight into how God views people. Uh, okay, so the, the story is about um, King David. He's probably the most famous king in, uh, of Israel. Uh, most people know of King David. And the story goes something like this, basically. God is looking for a new king because the first king, Saul, has been a total disappointment. He is a moral disaster and a bad leader and a bad king. Now, when you think of Saul, what I want you to think of is somebody who's like six foot four and a quarterback a la Tom Brady. Brady. Yeah, he's good looking. Uh, he's an impressive person from the outside, taller than everyone else. And he is the quintessential king, in other words. But God still is not happy with Saul because he has been a failure in terms of obedience to God and uh, just a moral failure for Israel. And he is going to replace Saul with a new king. So he sends this prophet, Samuel, to anoint a new king, and he sends him to a man named Jesse, who's got a bunch of sons. And long story short, Samuel asks Jesse to bring out his sons. He's going to try to figure out which one God wants to be king and kind of anoint him king right then and there. And Jesse keeps bringing out these like fine specimens, young strapping men, which God keeps rejecting. Nope, not that one, God says. Nah, that's not the one I want either. And he just keeps saying this to Samuel. And obviously Samuel's totally confused, and so is Jesse. Uh, and, and these sons that, that they keep trotting out are obviously who Jesse and Samuel believed were king material because they're looking at the outside. Surely one of these strapping young men are who God is looking for. But over and over, God just rejects each one of them, tells Samuel, not that one, not that one, not that one. Now, is it because of their appearance that he's rejecting them? No, 
No, that's not what, what we're told. It's because God is looking for something else in people. And he lets Samuel the prophet know, essentially, you're looking for the wrong thing. And he says this to the prophet Samuel. This is 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I love that. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. Does that sound familiar? But the Lord looks at the heart. And so who ends up being king? Well, it's the little shepherd boy who's out tending sheep, the one that Jesse couldn't even believe could possibly be a candidate for king of Israel. That's his smallest and least impressive son, at least from the outside. Uh, and you know the rest of the story of David, even if you don't know little about the Bible or Christianity or uh, Judaism. You know the story of David. He goes on to defeat a giant named Goliath. And um, to this day, that carries weight in our culture. Uh, and he turns out to be an amazing king of Israel. He's not perfect by any means. But this story is world famous of David versus Goliath. And it's embedded in our culture to this day. The point here is... The creator isn't obsessed with what we're obsessed with. Namely, he is not obsessed with external attributes. Now, we get caught up in height and wealth and skin color because we're corrupt human beings and we're shallow and evil, and so we focus on external traits. And this is not a good thing. This is a terrible thing. It's something that is a flaw in who we are as human beings. And one thing is for sure, not only should we strive, by the way, to overcome this tendency to look at the outside appearance of people, we definitely don't want to double down on focusing on external traits and judging people by those external traits. Instead, judging people by their appearances is something we should constantly strive to reject. We want to keep that impulse in check. That is our natural impulse, and we, we should reject it. We should try to keep it in check. Now, I can already hear the objection. I, I'm not God, Brett. I, I, I can't see a person's heart. No, that, that is true. You are not God, and I am not God, and we cannot see through to someone's heart. But we can see a person's actions, right? Those are, those are obvious to us. We can get to know people, uh, and certainly uh, we can reject the idea that we ought to judge someone based on their skin color. We can refuse to do that, right? Um, and by the way, uh, just to add on to this a little bit, we see this idea of being focused on people's heart and character rather than their outside appearance all over the Bible. Uh, this is a Judeo-Christian view that we ought not be focused on external traits. Of course, uh, this instruction is not there because we don't show favoritism based on things like beauty, height, skin color, and markers of wealth. Um, this instruction is there because we do show partiality and favoritism, right? We do do this. And it's our tendency. And so that's why I say the DEI folks are right about one part of this. Uh, the anti-racist folks are right about one part of this. We do have a tendency to look at someone's color and attach our biases to that person's color. And it's wrong. And God is against it. And we're told over and over in the text in the Bible to not show, and here's the word, partiality, right? Not show favor to one person or another based on some external attributes. For instance, between uh, the rich and the poor, we shouldn't show favor to the rich over the poor, whether in the courtroom, and this is all over the Bible, or in the pews of the church, uh, in the New Testament, this is talked about in James. The goal, again, 
that God is sort of pushing us towards is to treat everyone the same, regardless of who they are. We're not to get caught up in external attributes like wealth. And, and by the way, we can see who's wealthy, right? We know it's not like it's hard to figure out and we can get caught up in those outward appearances and those outward markers of wealth. And just like we can get caught up in uh, people's wealth or lack of wealth and treating them differently uh, and treating the poor and rich differently, we can end up treating people differently based on skin color. And it's wrong. We certainly, by the way, can't build a justice system that is color-centric and color-obsessed, which is exactly what America had in the past. That would be wrong. And we can't fix systemic racism, quote-unquote, by building a new form of systemic racism, quote-unquote, as Ibram X. Kendi suggests, in which we hire, fire, and promote based on skin color. No. The only way forward is to continue to strive or yes, colorblindness, to strive for it. And I emphasize that word strive. I didn't say we do it perfectly because we don't do it perfectly this side of heaven. And, uh, but aiming for colorblindness is still the best aspiration we can have as a society. Again, does this mean that we don't see color? Of course not. We do see color. That's why we have to work hard to overcome this tendency by striving for color blindness. We must strive to get beyond a person's skin color. We must make it our aim to get beyond the cover of the book to what's on the inside, to not make assumptions about people based on external attributes that only tell us a small part of an individual's story. MLK was right. Uh, his words put us on a path to a better America. And had MLK lived 45 more years, he would have seen our country, which when he was alive had separate drinking fountains. Uh, he would have seen us progress very far towards the goal of colorblindness. Uh, so he, we progressed so far, in fact, that we elected a black president named Barack Obama uh, and his wife, uh, Michelle, as the first lady. And I always point out, I mean, she's pretty loved in this country. I mean, I'm not saying by everybody, but these are pretty loved individuals. Uh, and, and believe me, it wasn't the 13% of, of America, which is the black uh, population size alone that put Obama in the White House. It was many Americans of all skin colors, the majority probably being white, and I think statistically that would be shown to be true, uh, that voted for Obama. Uh, now, I wasn't a fan of Obama's policies, but I did love what it said about our country, uh, that we had progressed a long way towards MLK's dream. And it should have given us hope that uh, in terms of progress and seeing past color, uh, that indeed we have made progress and we ought to celebrate that. Uh, now, is there more, quote, work to do, as the DEI slash anti-racist folks like to say uh, in regards to achieving a colorblind society in America? Of course, because we are fallible and sinful human beings and our hearts are prone to corruption and, yes, racial bias. It's the story of all cultures uh, and all societies around the world through all of time, uh, not just in America, but I'm sorry, DEI and anti-racist gurus, the quote-unquote work uh, isn't to double down on being skin color obsessed. It's to continue to strive for colorblindness, to judge people by their character rather than their melanin levels. Um, and here's the deal. The other option is where we're headed now, which is tribalism, which means going back to our groups, right? 
uh, encircling the wagons and segregating ourselves off based on external attributes and then warring for scarce resources. That's the story of the world too. See, when we abandon the principle of colorblindness, all that's left is power and which group can get it and which group can wield it over another group. In other words, we're going backwards to a time when we said skin color determines what part of town you can walk in, what job you can get, or what fountain you can drink from, or what loan you can get from the bank. And we can't go back there. Even if our intentions are supposedly good, it's wrong and it's going to end badly, as many will be hurt by these policies of discrimination, and there will be bitterness and more racial animosity and division will be the result. If we become color-centric again, we'll abandon MLK's dream permanently. We'll stop aspiring to view people as individuals and retreat back to new forms of racism, discrimination, and bigotry. And this is our natural state. Man looks at the outward appearances after all, as we discussed. So we have to fight against this, not double down on this evil proclivity. Yet, right now, Thanks to DEI initiatives and ideologies like anti-racism, we're doubling down on seeing skin color and discriminating based on those external attributes. Why? Why is this happening? Because too many people in positions of power are afraid to speak up. Too many C-suite executives, too many people in government, they're not dumb, they know it's wrong, but they fear a loss of their positions, their careers, and they want really, the approval of man. And I get it. I understand the temptation to stay quiet, but we're not called to seek the approval of other people, but instead to seek the approval of our creator who demands that we not judge people by outward appearances. He doesn't do that. Thank goodness he doesn't do that, right? The truth is we're heading towards a dark place if we continue to go down this color-obsessed path. And we're gonna be handing our children a new re-racialized world that embraces discrimination and teaches kids to be color-sighted rather than color-blind and to make judgments about people based on what they see on the outside. That's not what MLK called us to. It's not what God calls us to. Let's instead do the right thing and continue to strive for color-blindness, knowing that we're gonna fall short of the goal, but it's still the right goal. And really, I believe the only worthwhile one. Thanks for joining the AdWoke podcast. Find your voice. Speak up against this new state and corporate sanctioned discrimination. It's not right. And I pray that more of us will do that before it's too late. Until next time, remember, you're not crazy. They are.